Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. 868 in Pew Bibles, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. This is the inerrant, inerrant, infallible word of God. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him of all the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who had owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid his hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told the master all that he had done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray as your word goes forth, O Lord, we pray mostly that you would be glorified in this time and that, Lord, by your grace, we would be filled with grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless us, O Lord, and bless thy servant, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we're not actually going to do it, but suppose I gave you each a piece of paper. You had an activity. I gave you each a piece of paper. Already a little tongue-tied here. So I asked you to write down two short phrases containing just three words that you think are typically of the hardest things for people to say. I heard something out there. So. Then suppose I collected all your papers and read them. I suspect a good number of them would have these two phrases. I am sorry. I forgive you. They're two statements with words easy enough to say by the smallest child with the most basic of verbal skills, but when we try to say it, we almost choke 
on our words when we try to get them out. Even during those times, knowing that they would release us from a, so much bitterness and guilt, we fail to get them out, leaving us in a sorry state. The fact is that pride is such a force in most of our lives that most of us have a hard time admitting to others and also ourselves that we were wrong. For example, there may be fathers raising children who find it hard time admitting to the rest of the family that they blew it, that they disciplined their child in anger. We know discipline is never to be done in anger but in love. The same goes for many of us. We have strained relationships. And the only reason they go on is because somebody is unwilling to say, I'm sorry. And unfortunately, the longer this goes on, the harder it is to say. Then there are also times when people do admit they're wrong. They may be overcome with guilt and will desperately seek forgiveness to ease their conscience. We can see this in a story of another disciplining father who knew he blew it because he spanked a child for something the child did not do. He said he was sorry, and he was so distraught. And his conscience was bothering him so much, he asked the child, you take the paddle, and you spank me. He did that for a kind of a payback. But the child repeatedly said, Daddy, I can't do it. The dad responded, you must. You must, or I won't feel right. I won't feel forgiven. So perhaps even more sad than not saying I'm sorry is having our bent, heart bent in such a way, refusing to say, I forgive you. You see, we can say you're sorry. We can say we're sorry till we're blue in the face. However, if the other person is unwilling to say I forgive you, there can be no reconciliation, no restoration, no renewal in fellowship. God's word has much to say about the devastating effects of retaining that unforgiving spirit. The passage that we're looking at today was brought to my mind when I was in a situation where I was obligated to forgive an offending brother. At the same time, I had requested forgiveness from a family member whom I had offended. Now, the situation with the, the brother was remedied immediately. Unfortunately, the, the problem with the family member, I got a response of, okay, after I sincerely apologized multiple times. So, I divided this sermon into three sections. It's in your bulletin. No finality to forgiveness. That's Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Mercy, not justice. Matthew 18, 23 through 27. And an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. Matthew 18, 28 through 35. Now the passage that we're looking at, that I've read, came right after Jesus had taught the disciples on how to deal with a sinning brother. In response to this, Peter then asked, well, how many times shall a brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus responds not just up to seven times, but 70 times seven. That translation could also mean 77 times, so it's either 490 or 77. But the precise number really is important. Either way, Jesus is teaching that forgiveness must be unlimited. 
knowing what we realize now about God's mercy, having the benefits of reading our New Testaments, we may tend to look down on Peter thinking he could do better. But at least Peter was asking the right questions. Perhaps he was referring to what he knew from the Old Testament, Proverbs 24, 16, which states a righteous man may fall seven times. Or Amos chapter 2, verse 1, which mentions three transgressions and four. He did suggest a number, which was seven. That was three times more than the rabbis had prescribed in his day. But think about it, really think about it. Can you think of anyone in the last week, month, or year that you have consciously forgiven for the same offense seven times? Seven. You may have, but you probably have not. So at least grant Peter something. I'm sure Peter thought he was being generous. He takes it for granted, like we do, that we must forgive. But like Peter, we have an imperfect understanding a lot of times, thinking there's got to be some kind of limit. Matthew Henry writes that there is a proneness in our corrupt nature to limit ourselves in that which is good and be afraid of doing too much religion, particularly of forgiving too much. We also may think that if we, we readily forgive, we take so much abuse, we readily forgive, won't our leniency just be an inducement for them to keep offending us? It, it seems reasonable to us, right, that there's got to be some kind of quota, some kind of limit where we would be allowed at least some kind of revenge. Our typical pattern would be to count up to three offenses, saying, okay, that's once, twice, three times. And now, vengeance is mine. We can even count up to seven times, like Peter. One time, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And now I'm justified in letting the offender have it. Yet, here's Jesus saying there's no limitations with forgiveness. His response of 70 times 7 or 77 is a way of saying we should never stop forgiving. And by the way, when you think about that, no one can count sins and hold a rage if he meant it literally 77 times or 490 times. For the Christian, for us, forgiveness has to be a way of life. Otherwise, we're going to blow up. God keeps a record of wrongs of the offending party, not us. He is the judge, and we are not to be stepping onto his throne. Turn to me if you want, if you would, in page 190, Deuteronomy 32, 34, 35, page 190 in your pew Bibles. Something God says about the recording of wrongs. God says, have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. Now giving unlimited forgiveness is impossible. It's impossible for those who have not been changed or transformed by Christ. Therefore, Jesus in this parable of the unforgiving servant informs us how it has to be if we claim, if we claim to know the Lord. As most of us know, parables were a key component of Jesus' teaching style. Elder Ralph brought that up Wednesday night Bible study. This was foretold in the Old Testament in Psalm 78, verse 2, that Jesus would be teaching in parables. It was later brought up in Matthew 13, verse 35. 
Jesus did this for two reasons why he taught in parables. One, it was to confound those who rejected him. And it was to enlighten those who received him. You find that in uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. And also quoting Isaiah 4. Like a skillful artist, Jesus was, could tell of a scenario in a story that would give an accurate picture to the mind. We know that a good picture, when we look at a picture, could speak a thousand words, we were telling you. It could tell. It speaks more loudly and more clearly than many words. In this parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus tells of a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. In other words, to collect the money he was owed. In this, in this parable, God is represented by the master. The servant represents his image bearers and their obligation to him, us. We see the servant owed 10,000 talents. We see that in verse 24. 10,000 talents. Now, the first thing we should notice from this parable, what Jesus is telling us, is that every sin we commit is a debt to God, but not in a way amongst ourselves, such as uh, buying or borrowing, but as a debt to a superior. For example, the kind of debt we incur uh, when we break the law, breaking a promise, not fulfilling a service, wasting goods entrusted to us. We are all debtors to God and owe him satisfaction. The second thing we see that God keeps an account of the debt. There will be a day of reckoning when these accounts will be called over. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 14 says, For God will bring every judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. The third thing we need to see is that how much the servant's debt was. We read 10,000 talents, and you know we don't really bat an eye because we're not familiar with that, that currency. But a talent was 75 pounds. So the 10,000 talents would be 750,000 pounds. That's 375 tons. By today's standards, that would be billions and trillions of dollars. So you might as well consider this debt as it's infinite. And that was Jesus' intention. Our sin puts us in a state of bankruptcy because our debt before the Lord is infinite. Now, since the servant was unable to pay, we read that uh, the king was going to have him, his wife, and his children sold into slavery and hit their goods sold on the market. At least he would get back some of the debt that he was owed. But he still demanded the full payment. In verse 26, the servant, we see the servant was overcome and devastated. In an act of submission and desperation, he falls before the master and promises to pay all that he owes. Right, billions and trillions of dollars. This is a perfect illustration of us. How pride can still stick to us, when even though we are convicted sinners before the Lord. How often... How natural man, or even us in times of weakness, thinking we can make satisfaction with God through our own efforts, not realizing the extent of our depravity. Man in his fallen state and attempting to preserve his pride will always be prone to great lengths to establish his own righteousness. This through his good works, his moralism, his religious activity. Let's look at Ezekiel 33, verse 13 on page 762. 
of your pew Bibles. God says, though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of, his, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. You see, we can't make up for our sins. Infinite offense, there are infinite offenses against an infinite God. Yet this is the essence of all false religions and cults throughout world history. That is, earning our way. It's our own efforts. It's all the cults, the fake religions. It's basically man rolling up his sleeves, pulling, you know, girding up his loins, and just working, working to satisfy God. But we are, humankind is incapable of saving itself. We must rely on God's mercy and grace through the means that he has provided. Pastor Lee Smith shared with me one time a quote by Robert Murray McSheen that we are nothing more than what we are, if I'm quoting this wrongly, you can correct me after, but we are nothing more than when we are before God on our knees. Lee remembered, shared with me, he remembers that all the time. And since he has told me, it's resonated with me as well. So too, the servant, because his debt was unpayable, the only recourse standing before his master was to plead for mercy alone, appealing to any generosity in the master's heart. But his pride blinded him to such an option. He still thought he could pay it back. Instead, he put his trust in himself, and he was determined to pay, determined to pay the debt. He just, just needs more time, right? And this is the issue with unbelievers today. In their blindness and hardness of heart, they fail to embrace and believe in the gift of God found in the gospel. That is, that God sent his son, Lord Jesus Christ, into the world who lived a perfect life in our stead, taking on our sin debt and then dying on the cross, taking the judgment that we deserve, that we deserve from the Father, taking it instead of us. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And also Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through the Lord Jesus Christ. So our righteousness before God comes from the one who desires the righteousness. Despite the servant's foolish trust in himself, however, God's gospel is illustrated by the king choosing to exercise pity on the servant anyway. And what did he do? Cancel all the money. Which you consider an infinite debt. Canceled it. See that in verse 27. So too, like us, the servant wasn't expecting that. He still thought he could earn his way back. Foolishness. So too, like us, we're dead in trespasses and sins. When we had no thoughts of pursuing the Lord, after having been enlightened and convicted by his Holy Spirit, by God's Holy Spirit, we all of a sudden 
find herself having a new desire for him and in a new condition, forgiven from all that we're owed, that we owe by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. It happened to us. We didn't ask for it. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. But notice in the passage that though the master removed the debt from the servant, he did not remove the servant from his duty as being a servant. But now, just imagine what being free from that weight of debt and obligation could do to heighten the quality of service, his desire to extend the good news. Think of yourself when you came to Christ. Didn't you feel like the excitement? You know, like I, I, was, I remember R.C. Sproul saying, you know, you, you're so excited. You, f- you feel like you found the great pearl. And you're so excited about it. You want everybody else to find it too, but you find out very quickly they're not as enthusiastic as you are. But you're changed. You're more loving. You're more tender. You're more kind. When I came to faith, if you can remember that, I remember I was told I was more, appeared to me much more generous. So this is what should have happened to the servant here. He was forgiven an unbelievable debt. He's not going to prison. We also think of King David in 2 Samuel 9.3. He wanted to show mercy to someone in Saul's household. Now Saul's household was his enemies. They tried to have him removed, tried to get him killed. But here he wants to show mercy to him. Why did he want to do that? Because he had just experienced the mercy from God himself. So mercy should make us channels of mercy. So too, when we've been set free from the sin of the gospel, knowing that we are no more guilty, that God has taken our sin away, forgiven us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So in response to this gospel, we're renewed, and then we strive to be holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect, as Jesus commanded us in Matthew 5.8. We also take heed from what we're told in Micah 6, verse 8, where it says, The Lord has told you what is good. This is what the Lord requires from you, to do what is right, to love mercy and to live humbly with your God. Okay, so let's see how the servant responded to this being loosed from his infinite debt and his obligations. Well, we're told in verse 28 that he's in a a position as well of being owed money. He found a fellow servant. This fellow servant was in his own uh, same social class as himself, and that servant owed him 100 denarii. Just a quick uh, brief pause here. There's a lot we could discuss in the Bible that tells us about borrowing and having debt, but it is the servant's um, moral obligation to to repay his creditors to the best of their abilities. Someone who has borrows has a moral obligation to pay it back. Psalm 37.21 states, "The the wicked borrow and do not repay. So Christians, we should never besmirch the name of Christ by not being faithful in paying the debt. However, we see the servant showing great and unreasonable severity towards his fellow servant, especially when considering the leniency he was just given by his master. He demands payment from what he is owed. 
He wants what's his, and he wants it now. He even shows physical violence from the get-go by taking his fellow servant by the throat. <clears throat> the fellow servant falls to his feet, asking for more time, and he would pay back everything. We see that in verse 29. Notice the humility of this, this debtor. Though the man was his equal, he still falls to his feet. He shows respect to his creditor. And he honestly confesses the debt. He may even have known the debt that the one he owed, that he was forgiven by the headmaster. He could have brought that up. Well, you know, look at how much you were forgiven. But he doesn't. He, he still asks for patience by being given more time to pay back that debt. But there's no flexibility given, as we see. He has the man thrown in prison. We see that in verse 30. Now, the first thing we can learn from this servant's behavior is that even when we may be in the right, you know, we alone to somebody, we may be in the right as far as what we're owed, but we make it a real wrong if we are rigorous and unmerciful in our actions. For example, though the laws of our land allow it, having a revengeful spirit striking terror into men's hearts by suing them and resulting in a prison sentence does not reflect a Christian spirit, but a hardness of heart and a greater love for money than that of our neighbor. The second thing we need to notice here, though, in this, this transaction, this situation, is how small this servant's debt was compared to what the king had forgiven the other servant. 100 denarii was owed. What is that? Well, denarii was a day's wage for a common later. So that was approximately, what he owed was about a third of a year's wages. So I would say approximately 11, maybe $12,000. It's still a substantial amount, but it, it's payable. <clears throat> this comparison is to illustrate Again, that the offenses done to us are nothing in comparison to those which we commit to God. Again, it is a sin debt of vast dimensions. Matthew Henry, again, he writes that the offenses that man do to one another are like little pieces, a moat of dust, tiny gnats. But dishonor, dishonors done to God are like talents, they're beams, they're camels, terms the Bible used to imply bigness. They're bigly, as Donald Trump would say. We may understand the servant, we, you know, the servant, his behavior. Uh, we may understand a little better if he'd been on his way to prison for the debt he owed his master. You know, in that case, he could have got something to pay back. Uh, that would seem a little more reasonable, but that wasn't the case. He was forgiven all his debt, remember like we are in Christ. So with the servant, there was no merciful spirit exhibited, only malice. We also learn from this that, though we don't make light of those who offend us, we don't make it bigger than it has to be by dwelling on it. We must avoid any semblance of a revengeful spirit. We are to be givers of grace. Givers of grace to our neighbor even puts even their most offensive behavior in the best possible light. We must always assume, as Christians, we must always assume the best in others. After all, when somebody's offended us, we don't, we don't, we're not privileged to know any inflictions that they may be going through themselves. 
things that may have driven their seemingly offensive behavior towards us, such as they're feeling bad, they're sick, they feel poorly. How, maybe how others recently offended them, just putting them in a bad mood. Could be stressful events they are going through, mourning the loss of a loved one. The list goes on. How often, though, we don't take that into consideration. We respond with immediate severity like the servant, grabbing the fellow servant's neck, demanding what he's owed. We may not result to the actual physical violence, but how often do we preserve our pride by defending ourselves with verbal retaliation? After the poor servant is thrown in prison because he failed to pay, we see in verse 31 that other servants who saw the situation, they were grieved over this. Grieved over the cru uh, cruelty and the debtor debtor's horrible situation. They then informed the headmaster. This is also a lesson for us, which should be our response when we such, see such sins and sufferings in the world around us. Just as fellow servants approach their master in the, in the parable, we are to approach the Lord in prayer, asking for his divine interventions in response to all the wickedness, oppression, and suffering that we see in the world all around us. So the king has been informed. He in turn recalls the servant. He has been merciful to and rebukes him. He basically states in verses 32, 33, Wicked slave, all the debt I forgave you. Was it not necessary for you to have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? The servant's heart had not been touched. There had been mercy received, but he had no regard to channel this loving attitude to others. Jesus concludes this parable he's just told by saying, In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Then Jesus adds, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Notice that mercy without judgment is not scriptural, however. God is a God of profound mercy, yes, but he will by no means clear the guilty. We're told that back in uh, Exodus 34, verse 7. But those who abuse his gospel to continue in sin and hardness of heart will meet the wrath of an offended Christ. Now, someone once said that forgiveness is in, as indispensable to the life and health of the soul as food is for the body. Many live all their lives with feelings of guilt. Psychologists will tell you that the whole area of guilt and forgiveness is often a primary cause of mental illness. I suspect much of it could be relieved if we were all inclined to utter those simple, all therapeutic words, I forgive you or I'm sorry. And saying I'm sorry opens an avenue for forgiveness. Why does the human condition, why does it find it so hard to forgive? Well, we touched on it, but even when we're forgiven like the servant in the parable, the easy answer to that is our wickedness. It's our pride. It's our self-centeredness, being love deficient. The kind of love that we see in God and whom we must emulate if we have been renewed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
Conflicts among people are inevitable in our condition on this side of glory. We sometimes have conflicts with non-Christians. There are offenses done to us intentionally or even more often unintentionally. We ourselves can unintentionally offend people, often by careless, speaking carelessly. Uh, we forget promises. We fail to offer and help uh, our help in time of need. And there's many, many, or, many more things. And we know that forgiving others is easier than other times. All conflicts have their various nuances. Then there are conflicts amongst believers. That probably hurts us the most because we often think of the church as being a type of a place of refuge, that we shouldn't have to experience that. But we must remember that we are a family of saved sinners who still struggle with sin. There's going to be times of being offended. Fortunately, however, the Bible, Jesus, gives us resources for reconciliation with other believers. First of all, we're instructed, encouraged by God's word that we immediately forgive and overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And the shorter our anger fuse, the quicker we'll take offense at anything and anyone. However, if we decide we're going to overlook an offense, what does that entail? It means putting it away, not keeping a record of it, or even bringing it up later. No grudge holding and being free from all bitterness. Now, there are various methods to resolve conflicts which may involve rebuking and stopping the offense in, in the church. Time doesn't allow us to cover every possible scenario. For the most part, however, you are obligated, you are obligated to seek reconciliation of any conflicts with a brother or sister and not, not just sweep it under the rug. Now, just prior to this, Jesus stated earlier in chapter 18, that's in just a page before of where our scripture reading is today on page 867. If you want to look at that, Jesus had given us instructions. He says, if your brother, brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Sometimes verbally expressing for forgiveness to an offender won't be possible or is even appropriate at times. That is, if the person is not contrite. That is, that he's not sorry he offended you. Offering forgiveness in those situations may leave an impression that the offense is condoned. But the main point Jesus is telling us is that ultimately that we must always forgive from the heart. From the heart. Not doing so will eat us up and create nothing, uh, nothing but a bitter heart within us. So we must be ready and willing to forgive our debtors as God has forgiven our debts. We pray that as a congregation, every Lord's Day, when we say the Lord's Prayer, it's not easy, I know. Sometimes we know we should forgive, but we can't seem to let go of the hurt. 
Some offenses are so heinous that they're even hard to talk about. But this whole story that Jesus has told us in this parable should really, really grip us. It's important to realize from the passage that Jesus is not saying. This is important to know that he's not saying that we are forgiven based on our merits. We get from forgiving. Nor is he saying that it's possible that people can lose their salvation once they have been truly forgiven. No, Jesus here is not speaking in this passage about the way of salvation. He's talking about the result of salvation. If God has created you a new heart, if you are a new creature in Christ, you've been renewed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you will do these things. We saw how the king forgave the servant's vat step. He forfeited all his money. And how did he do it? Just by word. I forgive you. But in our reality, having been bought, brought into the kingdom of God, our debt is not forgiven by just a word, but at the price of Jesus' own blood. We read in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's where Jesus was headed. As he told this parable, he was on his way to the cross. Now, do we really believe what we say we believe? Not everyone who thinks he or she is forgiven by God is forgiven. But that's not because there is a shortage of forgiveness with Christ. When we fail to forgive someone who made a comment made to us in the last month, the last year, even in the last decade, when, then we reveal that we don't understand the level of forgiveness made available to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. When I fail to forgive, I declare that I have exaggerated the offenses against me and I have diminished my offense against God. Then what I, what I need to do, I need to step back and ask myself, do I really understand the gospel? C.S. Lewis writes, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Have you ever been in a situation where you got into a conflict with somebody, you apologized to them the following week, you talked it out, you thought it was all now good, swept under the rug, move on, but then you see that person the following week. And that individual doesn't talk to you. He doesn't even look at you. They're basically saying, I forgive you, but I'm not going to let you forget it. That's no forgiveness. Forgiving from a heart that has been renewed and regenerated, those are those words again, renewed and regeneration by the Holy Spirit will be exercised gladly, exercised generously, and exercised with finality. For you see, true forgiveness is found in the character of God in the communication and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this when on the cross, having been beaten, flogged, spit upon, mocked at, laughed at, we see Jesus praying in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is there any kind of forgiveness in your heart to those who have offended you? If when we come to the Lord's table, which we're doing next week, 
If we come with an unforgiving spirit towards a brother or sister in Christ in the church, then we're in a precarious situation, according to the words of Jesus. For Jesus stated in Matthew 66, chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. For you see, there will be a payday someday. Is your account really settled before God? Have you been captured by the gospel fully and truly understanding that your infinite debt of sin has been washed away and that you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away that's kept in heaven for you? Look to Christ. See his loveliness, his benevolence, his great sacrifice. Pray to him for a softer heart, a forgiving heart that is reflective of a loving heart. Ask him by faith to fill you with his Holy Spirit, a request according to his word that he would never deny if we ask it in faith. Luke eleven thirteen tells us that. Then, if need be, as Jesus said in Matthew five twenty four, if you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled, reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that you speak to us. Father, we are reminded of the great debt of sin that you have forgiven, that you have forgiven us. What a gift of salvation. All of the, all, glory be your holy name, O Lord. For all for your glory you did these things. Thank you, Father, for the great gift of salvation you've given us, wiping the sin debt clean. We pray that we would get this into our bloodstream in our relations with others where conflicts are sure to arise this side of glory, that we would always be willing to overlook or forgive, that we live in peace with one another. For nothing delights you more than brothers united together in love and unity, O Lord. We pray for your spirit to work in each and every one of us in our hearts, both that we would do these things with brothers and sisters, and also for the unbeliever. For, Father, we get tempted many times. Strengthen us, we pray. Help us be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.